0: This is Principles in Practice, a Shape of Advice podcast brought to you by Professional Planner and BlackRock. This series is a conversational style exploration of the different elements of practice management for advisors, drawing on the knowledge and experience of people that contribute to the delivery of advice to Australian consumers. Feel free to visit our website, professionalplanner.com.au and get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Principles in Practice podcast. I'm Chris Dastor, editor of Professional Planner. This episode will discuss the so-called Red October regulatory changes that commenced in 2021. It's been about a year since they've come into place, and in theory, this should have given the industry plenty of time to digest and adapt to the changes. Firstly, breach reporting and reference checking commenced at the start of October. Breach reporting was changed to increase the spectrum of breaches that advisors and licensees are required to report, as well as the time period they're required to do so. Reference checking was a reform introduced off the back of the Hainroll Commission, which outlined obligations for licensees to undertake reference checks and share information on individuals seeking to be employed or authorized as an advisor. October 5th saw the commencement of four more regulations. There was a deferred sales model for add-on insurance products and anti-hawking laws, but both of those focused on the institutional sector. For advisors, there was still the addition of the updated standards and requirements for internal dispute resolutions, or IDR, to improve complaints handling. And finally, there's the Design and Distribution Obligations, or DDO. DDO introduced the development of target market determinations, which means product manufacturers have to clearly identify the target market for their product. I'm joined by QMV Legal's Gabriella Pirana and Sean Graham from Assured Support. Breach reporting has probably been the most topical, as Gaiden's and Morcadia Research released earlier this year bluntly stated that advisors and licensees have no idea what's going on. ASIC Chair Joe Longo spoke not long after the report was released and conceded the work needed to be done. Gabriella, it seems part of the problem is the regime went from focusing on significant breaches to expanding it to cover more ground. How much did that factor into being a problem?
1: I think that that was the main problem with the breach reporting regime and I think that that's been the the largest hurdle as seen by the industry and what's caused the most confusion. Uh, the move from a subjective Significance test, which allowed licensees to essentially determine on a on the base of the circumstances whether the breach was significant enough to be reportable um, to a regime now where we've got certain obligations that the breach of those obligations or the potential breach or even an investigation of those ob- of a potential breach of those obligations is now considered a reportable situation um, under this new regime. And I think that that's resulted in not only confusion, but also uh, reporting of, you know, a, a multitude of reportable situations as they're deemed now that previously wouldn't have been reported. Um, and I know that I've seen instances where, um, you know, it, it is a relatively minor, I would call it, incident, uh, not necessarily a breach that can be considered a reportable situation and has to be reported to ASIC. Something like human error, um, you know, that results in advice being provided in a statement of advice, and that's corrected before the advice is actually implemented. Um, But because it's in the statement of advice and can potentially be considered inappropriate advice, you know, then that ends up having to be reported. Um, And I think that it's causing not only um, you know, manpower burden of having to report um, a lot of things, but also uh, a query of what ASIC's view will be in terms of um, how well this is meeting the objectives that were initially intended for this regime by Treasury.
2: Can I offer an alternate perspective of that though? Um, one is one of the things that was highlighted by the Royal Commission is just. Dis- but the fact that we had a subjective test previously, or an issue of significance, is that licensees weren't reporting breaches, uh, and breaches are fundamental to the effective operation of a regulatory system. So they weren't reporting them, and we had, I think it was an MLC entity that took over 1,800 days to report a breach, so slightly outside the 10-day period. So the... The Treasurer has responded by giving us some clarity about what needs to be responded. And I think there are a couple of things that are coming out. I I think what the Gaidens report highlighted was uh, a misunderstanding of what needs to trigger to be a reportable situation. Not everything's a reportable situation. Um, There are clear parameters, but there's a lot that's being, um, out of of fear of regulatory uh, consequences, there's a lot of stuff that's being reported which is just rubbish, right? Uh, And this is what led to this, and I don't know if you've heard this thing, but at a social event, a compliance manager told me there were 10,000 breaches that were sitting with ASIC. Now, I can't imagine how ASIC will get to 10,000 breaches in such a short period of time. So I don't think the numbers, I don't think the numbers accurate. I think it's more apocryphal, right? It's it's reflecting the industry's uh, lack of confidence in either the system operating as it's intended or the way that the industry is panicking about it, right? Um, But what I I do see here is that, and one of the things that, again, the Gaines Report highlighted, one of the compliance managers said, oh, we're now reporting things that we never used to report. Well, that's not a bad thing because the Royal Commission highlighted the fact that things were meant to be reported and weren't being reported. So I think that I think a lot of the fear is being created by a misunderstanding of how uh, the breaches work, about what actually fits into that category, and a lot of fear-mongering. Like we've dealt with a lot of licensees who say, oh, I've got to report these breaches, and you go, but they're not breaches. They don't meet the threshold tests. But there was a lot of, um, a lot of workshops done by some of the institutions early on which just created this, This real apprehension or this fear that unless they report everything, uh, they're going to get themselves into terrible trouble. And it ties into what uh, Michelle Levy's trying to focus on in her review, which is trying to remove some of this regulatory fear, this apprehension that ASIC's going to shut everybody down.
0: Yeah, and you um, touched on the um, rumor of uh, ASIC getting 10,000 breaches. I did reach out to ASIC um, to see if there's any truth to that, they couldn't really confirm the number. They didn't outright didn't necessarily deny it either, but um, it, it, it does seem like that they've probably put themselves at risk of overwhelming themselves in, in this sort of area.
2: Well, there was talk, I mean, one of the larger institutions uh, raised the issue with me about the there being a, almost like a two-speed uh, regulatory regime because the bigger groups who are well-resourced and have all these systems are reporting lots of issues to the regulator. And what they were worried about is they created the impression that the big institutions have all these problems where their view is we're being responsible citizens, we're reporting things. It's actually the other licensees that aren't reporting things that are the problem. Um, and it's interesting because obviously we can't, we don't see enough of... The industry to be able to see whether or not that's true but it's again it's one of those myths that's going around about this whole idea about is there are there different rules for different players and is that sort of uh, affecting uh, the data we're seeing in terms of breaches mm.
0: and uh gabriella the this isn't included in the advice review but realistically um perhaps levy's proposal to reduce regulation could mean there's less breaches to report
1: um I mean, yes and no. I, I think that's it, it's really the answer is it depends. Uh, I think that the way that um, Ms. Levy's proposals are are intended to essentially simplify the regulatory regime for advisors and licensees. And if that were to happen, by its nature, it will simplify the breach reporting regime, right? Because there will be uh, less obligations that are tied to having to be breached. Um, in practice, will that actually change the substance of the breaches and the number of breaches that are reported or reportable situations? Uh, potentially no, because ultimately what Ms. Levy is saying is, for example, with the replacement of the best interest duty per, in in the legislation, arguably potentially a common, duty, common law duty still remains, um, is the replacement with good advice. What she's saying is we're not actually stripping back the obligation of itself. So advisors will still have an obligation. Um, And separately, I think where you might see a reduction in um, reportable breaches is if there's no requirement to provide a statement of advice. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, she doesn't necessarily say we get rid of all record keeping requirements. So I think that then you open it up for potential for reportable situations to arise where advisors aren't keeping sufficient records um, of the advice that they're providing. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, Going backtracking a little bit, uh, I do think that potentially the breach reporting regime can become a lot more streamlined and much more effective if we do get some more guidance from ASIC, as ASIC has already signaled that they are likely going to do in terms of, um, as you alluded to, Sean— that getting rid of that fear mongering and licensees having a very clear perspective where those parameters of breach reporting sit and uh, what are the breaches that they should be reporting or the reportable situations they should actually be reporting. Mm.
0: And uh, moving on to DDO, which was uh, mentioned in the advice review, um, Sean, uh, Michelle Levy has touched on it and noted that it's an important consumer safeguard now, with her good advice regime, would this be more than uh, than a box ticking exercise for advisors and would this actually be useful in proving that they've um, given the uh, right advice? Yeah, it's, it's
2: interesting, isn't it? Like DPO, if you talk to advisors, that's the most bureaucratic, pointless. Uh, reform that, that's been introduced over the past uh, uh, past 10 years. Uh, the difficulty with the DDO piece is it really only required uh, licensees and advisors to do what they always should have done, which is understand the products are recommending and recommend mm. appropriate. And to Gabriella's point is that that should already be covered. Uh, regardless of whether or not uh, the best interest duty disappears, regardless of whether or not they make other changes, that sh- should already be covered under uh, the professional obligations of advisors anyway. So what is useful about the DDA, where it becomes more effective, is it's an effective check on the product issues in a way that we haven't had before in terms of complaints about products and complaints about the performance of those products and I don't know if you looked at some of the some of the data from um uh, recently about with well, the last report about the Ddo but most of the issues that were reported were largely about administration of the products themselves so it's a it's useful check check and balance from that perspective I don't imagine it's going to become any more important than it it, it probably is already
0: Gabrielle do you um, have anything to add for that
1: um, no, not really. I, I I think I tend to agree. Um, I, I tend to agree that I think that the um, DDO obligations are really focused on the product issuers themselves. And I completely agree with Sean that, you know, arguably advisors already have that obligation should already be doing um, everything that they can to ensure that the right products end up in the right hands. Mm.
0: And I guess to expand on that as well, um, Gabriella, it's been the case that ASIC has focused on the source so far on target market determinations brought out by product issuers. It seems that the regular is going to keep focusing that on that for a while. Um, but um, is, will just DDO be part of that, that good advice thing instead in the future?
1: Um, well, I mean, if you review, I guess, Michelle Levy's proposals specifically around what she's proposing with respect to DDO and advisors. Um, I think what she says makes a lot of sense in the sense that currently you've got advisors who provide personal advice, not really subject to the DDO obligations themselves per se. So that obligation to distribute or take reasonable steps to ensure the product is issued to consumers within the target market doesn't really apply because it's presumed that they're already taking into account um, the person's you know, financial objective situation needs um, and have that overarching best interest obligation um, or if it gets replaced with good advice. Um, but separately, there is still that obligation on advisors to report back to the product issuer whether um, it is receipt of compliance, whether they've received any compliance or no compliance. Um, And then more broadly, potentially advisors are exposed to the discretion of the product issuer um, around the type of information that the product issuer wants to receive from advisors. And I, I don't think we've seen that really play out in practice to be very burdensome per se, because I think that product issuers themselves are still trying to get their heads around we, we know, how do we comply with these DDO obligations and um, what do we put in our TMDs around the information we want distributors to circle back to us on? Um, and what Ms. Levy has suggested is you know, reducing that reporting burden and getting stripping away uh, the, the requirement to report where there are no complaints um, and that broad scope for issuers to um. Deem what they think is necessary. Um, so so I think that DDO, you know, that the relationship uh, between TMDs is an important document for advisors isn't going to go away. Um, going back to Sean's point, I think advisors should be considering the target market determinations, even if it's not a strict obligation on them. Um, will good advice, will that good advice qualify or change that? I don't think so.
0: Seems to be that there is kind of this two different sort of uh, worlds, or almost two different completely spectrums. Because on the advice world, it's very much a box-ticking exercise. Where in the um, product issue with land, it's yeah, it, it's a massive uh, regulatory obligation that they have to that they put in a lot of uh, hours into. And so they should.
2: I mean, if you look at most of the advice failures we've had for the last ten years, most of them are product Right, so you can go back as far as West Point or the angry schemes or whatever else. And sure, there's a distribution element, but also the issuers were not entirely clear, honest, or upfront uh, about what the product was, whether they misclassified or whether they misrepresented. And ultimately, when those products fail, it's the advisor who who is the uh, the, uh, low hanging fruit to be able to, to deal with it. The DDO, in principle, works it is a good regulatory uh, issue. The, the thing is, like a TMD, most TMDs are, are written so broadly that they give no help to an advisor anyway. It, it's no better than reading the PDS, which they should have read the PDS and understood the PDS anyway. The problem with the is when you, when you get down to it, is that there's no consistent process with dealing with the issuers. Right, so every issuer has a slightly different way in which they want licensees and advisors to respond. So it's really consistent. There are some issuers who actually tell advisors and licensees, oh, "I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a DDO issue. Don't report it." Right. So what we've seen is, when I look at the complaint data across our clients, like 25% of the complaints, roughly that our clients receive, are product complaints. You know, poor administration at, done at the, the product issuer level. And there's no real way, despite the FSC saying they were going to create a simple and, and consistent process, there isn't one. And this is the challenge for advisors trying to negotiate. And you really put something into their process that they'd always done as an organic part of their advice process about understanding, you know, know your product. Know your product before you recommend it uh, and push it through. So, yeah, I think it. I can understand the product issuer's perspective, uh, but from an advice perspective, it's probably a necessary uh, addition. And this is, uh, I guess, it really shows the way financial services is so badly put together in, a, in Australia and how badly it's regulated. Is that we've got a best interest duty, but now we want to take away the best interest duty, which means we can prop up the DDO and make this. And so it's almost like this massive balancing act, or like they they've got to keep the space. The plate spinning. So, if they want to take away best interest, they've got to fix it up somewhere else. So, I think we might all end up at the end of the day where we'll have all these things taken away to make it make it easier in some respects, and then we're just going to have countervailing uh, regulations on the other side to try to to try to manage it anyway. It'd be interesting to see how it works.
1: Yeah, I think a different perspective uh, that I've got around DDO specifically is that I think it draws together the entire ecosystem. Quite well, and has the potential potential to function, uh, and achieve the intended, I guess, uh, results that it's trying to achieve, which is consumer protection. Because ultimately, it starts with the product issuer, and you know, I agree that it DDO serves a pur- a much larger purpose for the product issuer than it does. For advisors or any other distributor, because ultimately it's going outwards. Okay, these are the products. This is how we've designed them, and then I think the advisor serves a really important function on the distributor end because they're they're the you know ears on the ground, and they can really see is is that product actually functioning um, as intended by the by the product issuer. And I think that that conversation that ha- that essentially is our obligation at the moment. You know, report complaints back. Is a really important conversation because oftentimes product issuers will design these products and they end up in the wrong hands or they don't function as intended. Um, and it's very, it, it, you know, it's it's we wait until a royal commission for the product issuer to 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 stop issuing those products. Um, and so I think that it, it's really that whole circular ecosystem where you get that feedback mechanism coming back from advisors to to say. You know, we are getting these complaints, or we're not understanding who you're who you're trying to issue these these products to. Uh, they're not suitable for the people you've um, listed in here. Um, so, I think it's a really important dialogue that needs to needs to continue occurring, and I'm not sure that it it does occur at the moment very effectively.
2: But I think one of the other problems you've identified, Gabriella, is the fact that financial products are often. Um, created without any real dialogue with the people who are going to be distributing them. And we saw this over a number of years where particularly complex products when you launch, really fascinating, the big breakfasts and big launches done by the, by the product issuers and advisors would come in and they get worked up. But then when you talk to the advisors and you ask them to explain how the product worked, they could. And I remember going to an ASIC uh, summer school years ago where they had... Uh, heads of uh, uh, product uh, managers from a number of big groups who were talking about their complex products. And someone in the audience said, can you explain how your product works? And he goes, no, no, well, that's not for me. We rely on advisors to do it. And they said, well, how do the advisors know? Well, that's a very good question. There's a, There was a gap. And that's what DDO is trying to address, right? It's trying to make sure that everything's lined up. But, again, it's putting a lot of obligation on the advisor to understand the appropriateness of the product. And I think DDO is really just trying to put that balance back and saying, if you're going to launch a product, at least think about who it's going to go out to and accept some responsibility for the pro- proper proper distribution. And in theory, that's always been done, right? Theoretically, that's always been done, but we all know uh, there have been notable failures for that to occur over the past you know, 20, 30 years.
0: And look, looking at other um, consumer safeguards as well, Another one that's kind of come back into the frame is anti-hawking measures. Um, Sean, Michelle Levy's signal that she believes this is a good consumer safeguard. It doesn't directly affect advisors, but how it would probably work is that it will stop super funds from engaging in those low-hanging sales techniques. Is that a a fair way to look at it?
2: I I certainly understand that perspective, but I don't... I think there are enough gaps in the anti-hawking rules that, you know... Andy Hawking um, prohibits unsolicited contact, but there are any number of ways which you can create the either the expectation of contact or to move it into being a solicited contact. So it's just a process issue. I don't necessarily think, you know, uh, I think one of the biggest uh, changes in the reforms is going to make it easier for product issuers uh, to distribute product, and I wouldn't be putting in a lot of uh, reliance on the anti-hawking the provisions to stop that occurring. So I think there's a there's a real risk that we overestimate uh, that capacity. There there isn't a lot of that. Uh, well, I can't say a lot over the past couple of years of that really um, unsolicited, unexpected uh, phone calls about financial products. I think most financial uh, participants have got very clever about the way in which they. Uh, Obtain that consent or negotiate that piece as well. So, I I, I don't see that as a particularly strong control um, going forward.
0: Gabriella,
1: um, yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. I th- I think I, I generally agree. Um, I, I think we've moved away from the times where, um, you know, there you picked up the phone to sell a product,
0: and. Um- so moving over to reference checking as well, Gabriella, you're, you, you've kind of found that las, licensees just can't really be bothered to to do that anymore.
1: Um, I, I think that the I think the Hayne Royal Commission changes actually have really importantly facilitated better reference checking um, for licensees. Uh, you know to be able to conduct appropriate reference checking of advisors that they may potentially be um, adding on as authorized representatives. Um, and really reference checking is critical to ensuring consistency and quality of experience. Um, and it's a really good risk management tool for advice licensees to be able to hire on and know who they're hiring on. Um, I mean, like any other industry. and previously before um, the Hain Royal Commission amendments were made and then ASIC issued their protocol, there was just a large inconsistency around the types of information that, you know, one licensee was willing to provide to another, um, how consent was being obtained, there was privacy concerns. And I think that the reforms now have... uh, allow for a better mechanism of information sharing uh, around the history of a financial advisor's experience and expertise.
0: Sean, is there anything you want to add to that as well? I oh, no, I agree
2: 100% with what Gabrielle was saying, but I, I find that the reality is very different, right? So um, what you have is some licensees hiding behind uh, exceptions to to. Uh, avoid having to provide reports. So what they'll say is, for example, is that uh, we give you files, but, you know, um, Chris and Gabriella worked on those together and Chris hasn't given his permission for you to see those files. So he can't let you look at any of the information about Gabriella's stuff. And on, on the other side, there is nothing that stops licensees who get really bad uh, reference checks, including notifications or, or uh, alerts to ASIC notifications to still taking those people on, right? Until we get to a point where there's some type of testing of the process and maybe the regulator's got to, got to go through and look at uh, movements across the industry and just do us dive some surveillance on that. I, I think the, the good licensees put those processes in place, but there are a number of licensees who have made token uh, attempts to uh, make it look as though they've got processes in place but are otherwise ignoring uh, the intent of the change.
0: And the um, the last regulation that we're looking at today as well is IDR. Sean, is the industry awake to the fact that they have to start this next year?
2: Uh, in terms of the mandatory reporting? Yeah. Some of them are. Um, but what we've found over the past couple of weeks is there are a number of advisors who think none of this matters anymore. <laughs> so that with the advice quality review, they don't have to worry about any of their legal obligations at all. And from next year, it's going to be okay. And that's everything from uh, the code requirements to their uh, their general obligations to uh, meet and talk to their clients. Uh, the the licensees we we've spoken to are awake are to it, but what they're struggling with is the particular way of having to report the data. That's what they're really struggling with because a lot of particularly small licensees have always had their, access databases or their Excel spreadsheets. And they are trying to convert those into the particular way that ASIC uh, wants to receive it from 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 next year. It's going to be a struggle for them, but uh, they'll turn their minds to it. It's just uh, one of the things to bear in mind is, is that most licences, particularly smaller licences, are going through so much change at the moment. And even the good news or the, the news that's coming out of the advice quality review, uh, it's, it's instead of settling things down and enabling them to focus on complaints and breaches and stuff, it's, it's re-agitating them. And I think this is going to be the challenge to see whether or not they're distracted from some of these poor and uh, mandatory requirements by some of the noise that's going on at the moment. But, you know, we can only hope that uh, they're ready and I think they'll be working assiduously up until this date to try to put uh, processes and technology in place to be able to do
0: that. And, Gabriella, you're uh, expecting advice licensees to kind of be the next domino to fall after the super funds in this space as well.
1: Um, Yeah, I I don't know that I'd refer to it as a domino falling per se. I wouldn't say that. uh, I have to be careful here. The super funds are my clients. (laughs) I wouldn't say they've fallen. Um, But, no, I think that the, well, I think naturally, right, the, um, the, the next sector could very well be advice licensees. Um, that ASIC, you know, uh, conducts surveillance over and has some feedback on improvements. Um, but I think it's really helpful for advice licensees that ASIC has taken on superannuation funds in the first instance, and you know, has issued some guide or well. A list of their concerns and what uh, what ASIC expects needs needs improvement in the IDR space, and um, you know, including response timeframes, recording of complaints, very basic things that ASIC is seeing as not being done well enough yet. Um, which I, I mean, echoing what you've just said, Sean, that you know there is a struggle around the implementation. Some of the larger ones have systems in place, and they were quick to get. Get that in order. Some of the smaller ones have dealt with so much change um, that simply the capacity of of them to implement that change is, you know, delayed because it's just it's near impossible. Um, but I think that this essentially is an opportunity for advice licensees, including those small ones that may be a, a bit behind, to focus in on the key things that ASIC finds most important around IDR and on implementing those things really well um not to the exclusion of the others but um obviously these are the key items that ASIC views is important for consumer protection Hmm. so I would encourage advice licensees to read ASIC's review of superannuation funds
0: yeah good uh good bedtime reading um that kind of (laughs) covers um the, what we were going to look at today. Uh, just to get your uh, final thoughts just over the uh, regulatory landscape, I'll start with you, uh, Sean.
2: Look, I think it's a, a, it's interesting times. Um, when I acknowledge that's a, traditionally a curse, <laughs> uh, many live in interesting times. I, I think we're in a really um, uh, difficult position for advisors and licensees. I think they're dealing with a lot of change at the moment. They've got this apprehension about uh, what the regulator is going to do. And they've also got these unrealistic expectations about what's going to change and how quickly. Uh, you know, So I think there's it's, it's probably the worst period now because everything, like I said, we're dealing with advisors who are just convinced that nothing applies anymore. That they've been told all this is going, don't need to worry about SOAs, don't need to worry about meeting clients, don't need to worry about uh, uh, the code requirements. And that's becoming more and more entrenched around the place, this view that once it happens, we don't have to worry about things. So I think it's a really difficult situation for licensees to manage and for some advisors to actually be able to cut through the static and figure out what's what's going on. At the same time, consumers are getting more and more active. So based on our data, the number of complaints has really quadrupled uh, from the, the same period last year. So consumers are generating more uh, more uh, attention and more focus on their licensees are becoming more focused on doing things. So, I think it's a really, it's a really challenging and a really difficult environment uh, to deal with. And those licensees who are trying to do it without, just with their internal resources and without checking, I think are in a real world, world of pain. Is that this is that's one they actually need advice and systems and people to be able to help them navigate uh, this particularly. Uh, problematic
0: period. Gabriella.
1: Um absolutely I I agree with everything that Sean's just said. I think that we're in a very interesting time specifically with advice licenses because you know we moved from a time where there wasn't very much regulation um there were some bad acts and then the tendency was to over regulate and push a lot of regulation at once. Um and then We had the Royal Commission, which we saw even more regulation um, come into play over the last year, year and a half. Um, And now we've got the quality of advice review, which is essentially saying, well, let's turn all of that on its head and simplify everything. Um, At the same time, you've got FASIA introduced initially, um, all these requirements for education, for advisors, um, and now we've got another consultation around, oh, maybe we want to scale that back a bit. And it won't be Fazia. It'll be another regulatory body. Um, and I think that it's causing confusion for advisors themselves, but also for the general consumer, um, because all of this is in the media. You know, you see the quality of advice review all over the AFR. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that I've got the answer to the solution. I mean, probably the solution is to let's you know, get it done and let it, let's see what the result is. Let's see how it settles down. Um, but I, yeah, I think that my view is I'd just caution um, licensees to essentially not get too distracted by the what ifs and what's coming in the future necessarily, but let's focus on what you need to do to run, uh, you know, a good business with good governance and compliance and risk management in the given moment. Um and obviously keep an eye out for what's coming, but I think it's, there's too many distractions.
0: Sean Graham, Gabriella Pirana, thank you so much for uh, joining me.